Ladies and gentlemen, John Darnell. Hi. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the 12th Annual City Lit Festival. My name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the Executive Director of City Lit Project. And uh, for you astute viewers, will notice that I am not Tom Hall. Um, Tom Hall from WYPR um, uh, blew his knee out the other week and actually had uh, the, uh, the what, arthroscopic surgery this past Thursday and is off his feet for a bit. Um, but I hope you had a chance to hear his interview with John um, on Maryland Morning this past Friday, which was, was really great for them to do, so I appreciate that. Um, so I'll be sitting in for, uh, for Tom um, and introducing and uh, having a conversation with, uh, with John. Get this open first. We're searching the building for a cup of coffee for John. It's all right. Let's see. Um, I'm going to flip the script a little bit and introduce John first and foremost as an author. Not only an excellent author, but his book, his first novel, his debut novel, which, we'll talk about that nomenclature, because I think that's yeah. cheating a little bit, eh. um, was, uh, no. what if I, what if what? I stormed out in outrage? <laughs> which How was, dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> his, well, regardless, if whenever in your career you get nominated for the National Book Award, Thank you as John's book, uh, novel, uh, Wolf and White Van, did last fall, um, it just makes my, uh, you might storm out after I say this, it just makes my hatred quotient for you go up exponentially, um, as uh, John is a, uh, obviously a poet and a lyricist and a, and a novelist. Um, oh, he's also in this band called the Mountain Goats, you might want to give them a round of applause for that as well. Um, if you glimpse... Uh, at John's website, um, it will reveal a pretty insane and intense um, uh, schedule of travel that he's been up to um, in support of um, the Mountain Goats' uh, latest album, Beat the Champ, which is um, about that age, ageless literary trope, professional wrestling, which um, uh, uh, is strictly UHF material, as you say in, in, yeah, in yeah. Uh, other, other areas. Um, so I really want to thank John for squeezing in a trip here to Baltimore. I think literally you're, you've got maybe like 10 days between gigs and, and you're spending you know, a yeah. portion of that here. So, so thanks, thanks a lot. No um, problem. John um, has two little kids and he's um, tired a lot and uh, misses his family. So really appreciate him coming up to Baltimore. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for place when it comes to music and writing. And John has these... Um, Oh, ongoing songs about the, go the going to songs. Mm. And one of your songs is going to Maryland. So I want to welcome you back to Maryland, and, uh, but specifically the great city of Baltimore in this end of a very trying and um, difficult week, but hopefully a week that's going to uh, turn into some, some good news for this town and for the, some communities and people who have been struggling um, in this town for, for decades. So um, uh, I appreciate you also flying in to, uh, and putting up with the curfew tonight. Sure. Well, yeah, I, mean, I was really, I, I was going to go out and party uh, until really late. I'm a legendary, you know, uh, close all the clubs kind of guy. So uh. You have the 9.55. <laughs> but um, 
But speaking of Baltimore and this place, um, I'm, I'm going to start my conversation with John. I'm going to start this company. Thanks, got your cup of coffee. Um, uh, in the middle of Wolf and White Van, um, which uh, I hope you've had a chance to read, um, and, and you'll get that book signed later today. But in the middle of, of, the, of, the, of the book, something that caught my eye, and I actually made a marginal note about you know, Baltimore, and maybe we can start a conversation here where you say, but generally, the only way we ever know anything about anything is if something goes wrong. Um, and I think you were saying that in the context of your protagonist's life. Well, he's saying that. Yeah, I should say it's, not, that, yeah. it's not a statement I'm making. Right. Uh, but, but, but can you reflect a little bit about that and maybe some of the things we're trying to learn from what's gone wrong or happened in Baltimore? Well, I mean, this is... Uh, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, I want to distance myself from my narrator, but at the same time, I think I do agree that, you know, we don't... Uh, you don't notice much about your body until it hurts, you know, or feels profound pleasure, which is not a wrong, but until there's right. some, some variation from the norm, right? Uh, and I think that's true, right? That, that, that you sort of, uh, and I don't know why it is that, that, that stasis is sort of, you, you regard as this condition of, of ignorance, right? Of a kind of an ignorance that you pursue and, or, or, or enjoy, right? But, but when something goes wrong, that's when you notice things. I'm thinking about, like right now, I jammed a guitar pick into my... Uh, uh, right between my whatever you call the area between your fingernail and your flesh there I was reaching my pocket to get one and the new pick went way in it was in Louisville right so it still hurts right otherwise I would not be thinking about the tips of my fingers at all I'm barely mm. conscious of them all the time right and, uh, and so that's what he means is that you know that, that there's all any given part of your body you don't know how your elbow feels unless I mention hey how's your elbow right now and you go oh well I hadn't really thought about it but if I break your elbow then you'd be very conscious of your elbow all day long, right? So, um, This story is told in a very unique uh, uh, fashion. It's told essentially backwards um, and all from within the head of the protagonist, Sean, um, which I have to commend you for, you know, uh, maintaining that perspective. Mm. There's, everything's happening inside the head of the protagonist um, and it's, Going backwards, you do some nice shifts in, uh, you know, one of the first things you, you're warned about is, well, never write, you know, in the past tense, always act, you know, or in the flashback, try to be active. But you do nice shifts within Thanks. this extended looking backward Thank you. novel length treatise. Um, one of the th word, themes, because you use the word repetitively, is this focus, this idea of hmm. focus. Um, and I, I've, I've marked a few times when you do that um, to the point where even uh, Sean's company's name is yeah, yeah. Uh, Focus Games. Can you talk a little bit maybe about the way the theme of focus plays within this, this story? So I guess that's yeah. a very good question because um, I don't, I'm always talking about this that like a point of resistance I used to always have in writing classes is they describe writing as though you, you, know, you conceive of a theme and then you address that theme but that's never been what I've done and my most successful successful in terms of like I like it best stuff I don't know what I'm doing when I enter onto it I just start doing a thing and a thing comes out right and uh, this is why I will never teach a writing seminar <laughs> we'll do a thing right and then you will see that there's it's great to do things thank you I'll go get my check and I'll see you all next week uh, so uh, but uh, but 
So, but but I, I assume I have faith that I'm writing about something, right? That there's that there's something that, that rises up from it. And I hadn't thought of 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 how how where your focus rests is a big part of it. It's called I I don't remember why I called it focus games. It just seemed like a funny like a thing to call it, you know, mm-hmm. like something a teenager might call his. The, if you haven't read the book, it's narrated by a guy named Sean Phillips who uh, suffered a catastrophic in, catastrophic injury when he was a teenager. And he designs a game that you play through the mail in the internet age, uh, in the pre-internet age. It's a turn-based mail game, so uh, it takes place in, in the future, right? And, uh, and you, you read a scenario at the, at the end of each scenario. There's four choices, and you send in your choice, and you're sent back the corresponding scenario, and it's kind of like if you were playing a, uh, an 8-bit video game but having mm. to come back every week to go to the next screen, right? So, uh, and his company's called Focus Games. Uh, and it's... And, like, all I thought when I was thinking of it is, like, well, that the sort of name you might come up with in 1982, you know, for your game. But I think, uh, but I think the book is also about, you know, uh, where you let your focus rest and what it's like to focus in the wrong place, you know. I, I don't mean wrong place, but, you know, what it's like to, to let, let your focus rest in some place that's, not, that's unsafe or unfamiliar or unstable. Right. Um. And often Sean would have to focus to uh, get the noise out of his head. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, a lot of he's got tinnitus. He's got yeah. really aggravated tinnitus. Right. Um, did that? Did, did the the thought of focus come through any like? When, could you kind of sit down day after day or whenever you find the time to return to the writing of this particular novel? You know, months of being a father and a musician. Yeah. Um, and it's I I I. I my understanding would be that it'd be a hard book to focus on as a creator. Um, how so, did you pick up? How did you step back into that stream? So here's this is the unromantic uh, story of of the writing of the book. Is like after I turned in my first, there was a novella that I wrote called Master of Reality. That's uh, actually it's a critical essay about a Black Sabbath album, but it's through a fictional lens. Uh, and uh, and I finished it, and I was so stoked when I was done with it. I handed it. Oh my god. You actually finished the thing. It's going to go to press. This is awesome, right? So I just started writing another book. You know, I was like, that was great. I want to do another one, right? And I wrote what became the last chapter of this. Right. And I just sort of tinkered away at it when I had spare time for a year or two, you know. And uh, in the meantime, Master of Reality had come out, and a guy named Chris Paris Lamb, who you know, who's my agent, uh, had contacted me to say, well, if you ever wrote anything else, we'd love to represent you. No obligation. So I signed a thing with him. I said, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to finish this. I do, I'm busy with the band, so I don't know. Uh, and I wasn't really, I was just, you know, it was a thing to do when I wasn't doing other stuff, mm-hmm. right? And it was so many, there were all these other, there were many, many narrators. Like, there, originally it was not, there was only the one chapter by Sean, and there was a chapter by his dad. There was a chapter by a, a, a preacher because he goes to an evangelical church that wants to exploit him and all these other things. Uh, and, uh, but I wasn't, it was spare time stuff. And then Chris called and said, hey, no pressure, but if you have anything that you wanted to show to some publishers, uh, we could put it together and, and see if anybody was interested. And I thought, well, you know, I hammered six chapters together and sent them to him. I'd had the idea at that point of telling it backwards. And then somebody wanted it, so we put a deadline on it, and then I finished it. <laughs> it's like, in other words, I would still be just messing around with it, and I would be pretty interested by that process, because I think... I can never remember who it is who says that, that work is never uh, finished, only abandoned. Right. But that's what a book feels like, is like, you know, you decide to say, well, 
I'll go this way, but there's so many ways you might have gone. There's, it's infinite, just like in your own life, you know. And so, so, uh, so, but yeah, but much of it was kind of arbitrary and driven by, by you know, by, by happenstance. Um, are you a gamer? I am now. Uh, <laughs> I never played. I only played one session of D and D when I was uh, in junior high. I mean, when I was, I mean, one afternoon. Right. Uh, uh, I played a lot of video games. Though. I hated that stuff. Well, no, it's good. D and D itself is kind of a little too math based. Is the problem with it? Like, there's not a lot of room for free play. You know, it's more about constantly throwing dice and, and slaying the beasts. Which I'm into that actually now right. too, because the right. beasts are cool, right? right. Uh, but there's many other games. There's a designer I play with named Jason Morningstar, whose games are very open and free, and most of them have no dice at all, or if they do, it's only every so often. But it's more like, it's more like improv comedy, but usually more improv drama. You, you sit around. He's got a new game called Night Witches, which is about these uh, Soviet pilots, these women who flew these cheap planes, and they were, they were just interference missions. Like they'd fly a plane toward the front, to distract the Nazis so that you could move, so that the, the, the men could move in toward them, right? Most of these women got killed, right? They, they, their, their planes were terrible, right? They, 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 were, they were there to get shot at, right? And maybe to release a bomb or two if they could. Uh, Jason said this whole game where you play these pilots, right? And you just, uh, you start with very low points and you lose them. You don't improve your plane. You try not to lose it, right? But you do, everybody dies in this game. It's, right. uh, so... It's, it's great. <laughs> well, I, I'm actually a bit surprised that you said that you've only really kind of come into gaming lately. I would no, I didn't that. get into it until I written the book. Yeah, right. <laughs> my wow. friends started asking me like, so I mean, what why, I mean, I would. Why did you pick that device then? I mean, what is like? What am yeah, I, I doing? So this is one of those things that you know I talked about. How I sort of always been resistive to writing workshops and stuff like you know when you write collaboratively with people, people who are good at it are good at brainstorming. Go, so what happens next? What's the guy like? Tell me, does he have a mustache? And you do that in the first few times. You're really uncomfortable. But I had done a thing, just an idea for a TV show that never went anywhere with a, guy, a friend of mine who's a Hollywood guy. Um, he did a movie, uh, what's it called? Room 237, the one oh. about The Shining, right? Tim Kirk, one of the guys who did that. We were developing, just kicking around an idea about a TV show about werewolves. And he was really good at saying... So, tell me about their human friend. Where's she from? What's her deal, right? And, and it was, I became comfortable with that. And, and so when I was writing this, you know, I had this guy, and he's disfigured, and I said, well, how does he make rent? You know, you have to have money, right? Or you live on the, the street, you know? And, uh, and he doesn't live on the street. He has an apartment, I know, because I'd already written a scene with an apartment, right? So, so unless I throw him out of the apartment, I've got to give him some money, right? So either he can have a big settlement from a lawsuit, which is in there kind of, right? But he has to have some kind of income, right? And so I thought, well, what can you do, you know, if, uh, if it's very, very hard to get a job because of how you look, right? And I thought, well, you'd do mail order of some kind. And I had a brief moment of thinking, yeah, he'll sell music uh, by a mail order just like, you know, all the people that I knew coming up in the mid-90s. But, but I didn't want it to be music-based, so I, so I thought, what's he into? Right. And that's how I came up with it. And, but it works perfectly because it allows you to... Basically, Sean creates the world that is the Trace Italian. The baby can stay, by the way. I'm a father of two, so if she makes a little bit of noise, it's not even a big deal. It's just totally fine. Anybody hates okay. on the child, I will personally... Oh, okay. <laughs> totally <Okay>. cool. <laughs> um, because, oh, yay! Yay! Um, 
because it's during that long time of uh, Sean's initial recovery in the hospital. Like, you know, well, that's not going to be very exciting to try to describe, but it's in, within that time frame that he, he's starting to conjure up the yeah, world yeah. as the, the Trace Italian. Um, uh, so just because that wasn't hard enough for you to try to, to master, you, you said it in this, um, in this world, the 1990s, where this game is played, you know, uh, by mail order. It's the 80s. Or the 80s. Yeah. I thought it was 1990 where it started... No, no, it's, it's, it has to be pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, what well, no, no, well, that's no, where I was going with the, yeah, yeah. you know, trying to be anachronistic. No, there is internet by the time we get to the, by the end. We, we start in the yeah. 90s, yeah. So, I mean, did you find it difficult to, like, oh, I can't talk about email there? That's, you know, just, like, like putting your mindset no, in No, I actually found that really natural down. because I think when, it's, to, it's still less so now than it was in the mid-90s, but, like, Whenever those elements of a technology that's still functionally new, inter-narrative, they usually read kind of like people are trying too hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially like, go watch Law & Order, right, from seven years ago, and they'll have, you know, some sort of uh, dating site called BeFriends, right? <laughs> it's actually Friendster, right? Uh, but, but, like, really awkward, and it dates really badly. Go see that Sandra Bullock movie, The Net, right? And, uh, uh, and all these sorts of things. And I thought... Well, cool. I found a way to not have to do that because cause that technology is still evolving so much that it's sort of like if you if you go read, you know, people trying to use cars in in books of the twenties. Right. You know, the car is too new. They don't know how to talk about it. The vocabulary isn't settled yet. You know, so so that was actually you know, I'm writing a thing now where I'm like you know I, I'm trying to figure out what all to do with that kind of stuff. Right, well, like the first Die Hard movie where. Willis is running from payphone to payphone. You know, right. our kids yeah, yeah, yeah. were like, well, "I don't understand the premise of this movie. <laughs> What's well, he running from? To what? To what?" So here's the thing: if you <laughs> if you read fiction from the late '90s, people will consistently identify cell phone, right? But now it's integrated enough that I just say, "Well, I called him on the phone," and everybody pictures me with something coming out of my pocket and going back into my pocket. I don't have to specify cell phone, right? And uh, and so, whereas with internet stuff, I, th- I think the the way to to weave it into fiction is still in in, in flux. Let's talk a little bit about these the the, the three uh, players that you sort of highlight throughout the, the novel. Um, you have a a, uh, a player named Chris, who bails, right. who stops, who gets kind of concerned about the mm-hmm, the integration of the game into his life. Yeah. Then you have uh, Carrie, who right. um, dies in the course of right. playing, um, and um, uh, Lance, who who survives, survives, yeah. but is some frostbite and right. might lose some hands and feet and stuff so um, the, they were getting t- over the course of the novel they're getting more and more involved with you know they're trying you know they're, they're transitioning the game or uh, into real life which I think um, it's interesting and I it might touch a little bit about your um, your music background about you know and, and when I was a kid that was sort of like you know don't listen to the record backwards or don't listen to the right. lyrics and you might trans, you know, transition those lyrics into real life so were you sort of um, you know, what, what was your motive behind the sort of these three characters and their three different their three different reactions to the interaction with the game, and ultimately, I guess, with Sean? Yeah, I don't know about a motive. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of uh, uh, blunt as far as characters go. Like, I don't I don't want them to stand in for for some tendency, right? They're people, right? And so I want them to, to be who they are, first and foremost. It's like, with Lance and Carrie, I wanted there to be people who who, who you like, you know, uh, 
who you sort of unambiguously like. And they, they struck me as likable people, you know, good young people. And then Chris Haynes came in late when I was trying to think, well, we only know these two people who play, right? Who else? There have to be other people, right? And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I thought of the question of how people age out of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like happened to me. It's like, you know, you, you're really super into something and then you turn around and you see all these books in your bookshelf from your, you know, Spanish detective fiction phase that you don't really read that stuff anymore, right? And it's like, and you like it, fine, but it's like you have moved along to Japanese detective fiction or whatever, you know, and, uh, which is awesome, by the way. Um, but, uh, but I thought, I mean, I, that, that was, for Chris, I wanted there to be somebody who, who had, had been there and, and come out. And I also wanted a foil because you only had these two players who had come to harm. Right. But Sean repeatedly asserts that, that really playing the game is a thing people can just do, you know. So I wanted somebody for whom that was true. Because um, Sean was unaware of like, uh, what the power of what he was creating may have had on other people. And, yeah. and that's an interesting theme. That we we'll talk a little bit about that, unpack that a little bit about how, you know, as a creator, you know, you, you make this relic, but you have no control on how that product sure. is going to be received and on acted upon. Um, that must happen a lot, maybe, in, in your musical career. Maybe. Yeah, um, I mean... We've... It's a complicated question because it's like, in, in this extreme case, like, I don't think anybody, you know, imagines that, that... I mean, for one thing, I'm writing stuff that tends to take place in, in, in the world world, not in some... You know, there's no hidden treasure. Right? Right. You know, if somebody hears a hidden message in my song that, the, you know, that speaks more to them than to me, right? Whereas this, he's playing this game that's like a maze. And so it's fair enough for people to go, well, if it's a maze... It leads somewhere, you know. Uh, there's, there's that. I, mean, I think he's not a typical creator insofar as the distance he wants to give himself from the results that play out. I'm not sure how much he deserves it. He knows that, you know. He does the thing where he sends a scalpel to Chris Haynes, right? Mm -hmm. That's he, he. He crosses this line where there has to be this gulf between a person who makes something and the people who do stuff with it, you know. Uh, and for Sean, because he's lonely, I think. Uh, he he sort of breaches that gulf a little bit, and and it, uh, you know I I don't want to assign blame. I think a lot of the book is a, is about not wanting to assign blame, not wanting to to describe causes where the causes are actually a little blurry, you know. Uh, but but yeah, I mean there is the question of like you know if you write a book called Go Out and Buy Stock in Apple, right? Then you don't get to say, well, I didn't mean for people to go buy stock in Apple. <laughs> But but if you create some some uh, some imaginary world and other people who also hunger for imaginary worlds sort of like carry the dream into in, a, a little further into into this world than it belongs, there's the question of like who who, who bears the, the the responsibility for that. And I think that leads me to a question I wanted to, to touch upon about her, his parents um, and blame and guilt and responsibility. His father. Right. When I when when we first meet. Sean's father. Um, I just love this scene. Uh, first of all, I, I like the father's voice. Mm. It's, he's, it's he, the way it's written. Um, even before you later in the novel use the word stutter, uh, it's, it's a stuttery right. uh, voice, and that I think says a lot. And it's mm. interesting, and the words he chooses to repeat in his exchanges with Sean. Um, but the first time you meet Sean's father, he is stuttering because he's nervous to try to explain to Sean why he doesn't want Sean to come to the grandmother's right. funeral. And that's just, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, 
Talk to us a little bit about this father and the, and the role that this father plays. Well, why don't I read those scenes? That's yeah, well, yeah awesome. Uh, great. That's not... You, you book your book. Cool. You find it. So um, there's a little setup scene here uh, with his nurse, Vicky. Uh, I caught Vicky looking at my face in the light. I was sitting at my desk with some old pictures I dug out from an unmarked box. Me and my grandma running with geese somewhere. The zoo, I guess. We're on vacation. I wasn't sure. If I'm in a bathroom out there in the world someplace, I'll catch the glint myself on the raised ridges on either side of my mouth area, the dully shining skin. Pretty bad, I said. No, 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 she said, with a little catching laugh in her breath. You know I work doubles on weekends out at Loma Linda, though. No, I said. My conceptions of people's outside lives are pretty crude, basic two-dimensional stuff. I do, I do, she said. Anyway, my sister's friend works reconstructive. They had somebody like you in there just last week. Our eyes met. This doesn't happen for me often with anybody. It felt so naked. I tried to stay with it, to be present for it, to see where it would go. They can do so many things now, honey, she said, returning her eyes to her work. She was prepping some swabs for my cleaning. It's a lot they can do since you first got hurt. I know. I, t- I talked to them about it a couple years back. How long ago was that, she said, her gaze back on me pretty steady. You forget how well people know you when they know you. I opened a drawer on the left side of my desk, the personal business side, which doesn't see a lot of traffic. I moved some stuff around and found a few brochures. One was even from Loma Linda. Imagine. Vicky looked them over. They're in their own building now, she said. This one is from when they were still over in the main surgery building. The western desert gives way a little. Marsh gas, some smell on the wind. Dawn face mask, trace back, continue due east, dig shelter. Anyway, she said, you could call them, and she swabbed my cheeks with some glycerin on a compress, so gentle it barely stung at all. It's your grandmother, Dad said on the phone after we'd finished up our opening moves today. Last night, she, she, she died last night. When you shoot yourself in the face with a Marlin 39A, one thing you don't think about is what your father will tell his mother when it becomes necessary to tell her something's happened. My grandfather on my father's side had been dead for over a decade. He had a heart attack one day in the supermarket. I'd overheard my dad explaining it to mom after he he came home early from work. The aisle was empty. It was early, he said. He was lying there for, for, for a little while. I was 12. They took me to the funeral at Oak Park and I stood quietly imagining what the screams would sound like if the coffin's lid sprung open and something crawled out. Grandma stayed on alone in the giant house where my dad and his brothers had grown up. When, eventually, the climb up the stairs got to be too much, she moved downstairs, and the second floor became an accidental museum commemorating the last day anybody lived there. I used to hide out up there when we'd visit and try to get lost in the dusty, abandoned feeling of a place where nothing ever happens. What they told my grandmother after the accident was that I had been in a car accident and that everyone else in the vehicle had been killed. This was an important detail because lots of people get into car accidents and come out basically okay. They break arms or they get concussions. Maybe they get brain damage and can't remember things like they used to. But they don't look markedly different unless maybe their face hits the windshield and the car catches fire and everybody else inside gets burned to death. These were two of the details my father had asked me to memorize in case Grandma ever asked me about the accident and to mention if she did. 
She's not going to ask you to talk about it. I know she won't, he said, but in case she does. Conan the Barbarian has no parents, as far as I know, but in my mind he was my model, trying to, stay, to stand strong and brave, sword in hand, black hair flowing. In truth, I have very little hair on my head now, and the hair I do have tends to clump in stringy clusters, but if my eyes are closed and my concentration is strong, I can form a different picture of myself in my mind. So this was what I did, standing by the waist-high desk where the phone was. I closed my eyes, and I concentrated. Dad was getting ready to tell me about the funeral plans, I knew. I could make it easier for him if I tried hard enough. It isn't really much of a mystery, this occasional need I have to comfort my father. I did something terrible to his son once. Grandma lived a long time, I said, ten plus years since Dad took me down to raise on that open-ended mission where nobody got revenge and nothing got resolved, and a whole lot of empty ground in the space from now to then. I have a theory that the less you say when someone dies, the better. Leave everything as open as you can. Thanks, Sean, he said. For me, this is hard. I, it's terrible, I said. No, no, he said. That it, It's all really hard, but, but what I actually... I will not... No, no, Sean, I don't like to say this. I know you loved your grandmother, and she loved you, but we... Pausing here. Some things you practice a few times, but it doesn't make them any easier. I could hear it now. We don't think you should come to the funeral. I know that's... He just left it there for a second. It's really hard to... When anger rears up in me, I have a trick I do, where I picture it as a freshly uncoiled snake dropping down from the jungle canopy and heading for my neck. If I look at it directly, it'll disappear, but I have to do it while the snake's still dropping or it will strike. This sounds like something they teach you in therapy at the hospital or something, but it's not. It's just a trick I found somewhere by myself. Once you've looked at a deadly thing and seen it disappear, what more is there to do? Walk on through the empty jungle toward the city past the clearing. It's okay, Dad. I said evenly. I took stock of how I really felt, found all the various threads, saw which way they all ran. That it's okay. I get it. It's all right. And I do get it. I am not a welcome presence at a funeral, no matter whose it is. If I let myself stay mad about that, I will go insane. On the other end, my father, now an orphan, was crying. Thank you, Sean, he said. I don't mean to be awful to you. It's just, it's hard for me to ask. It's really hard. Your grandmother was so happy back in those early days, back when the little silence that followed wasn't my dad's repetitive stutter. I could hear him entering a space he usually tried to avoid, finding himself on the other side of a door he wouldn't normally open. I followed him in. When you were a baby, he said at last. He sounded like he was choking. It's okay, Dad, I said. It'll be okay. Clan Scarecrow, I saw, penned in neat script on a little card inside my head. I, I, I love that scene. Thank you. Um, it's so revealing, and um, on a deeper level, that, that so visceral and emotional on, a, on, a, on, a, on the surface of the skin level. Um, you think Sean and his dad loved each other? No. I mean, 
for whatever reason, Sean lives inside his head, right? Sean, I think, has some trauma from having been scooted around a lot as a kid. There's a lot of movement, uh, and that's the sort of thing you can't really, you know, quantify what happens, you know, when you move from school to school when you're small. Uh, some, some kids roll with it and some struggle. Uh, but I think that the traumatic event, I think, has, 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 a, has placed a distance between them that they can't really meet across. I think Sean has a better view of his dad than his dad has of him. And, and the mother seems, um, uh, maybe like many mothers, she kind of wants to go back in time maybe a little bit and maybe make it all... No, I think there's more to her than I really show. Yeah. Uh, I, think, uh, I think she... I think she's quiet. A quiet person. But I don't, I don't, I don't think that, means, that indicates an absence. I think it actually indicates a, a big presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Conan. Wow. Yeah. That's, why, why did you grasp on the, the, whole, the Conan motif? Runs throughout. Yeah, there. yeah. He's a big fan of Conan the Barbarian, who was a hero invented by Robert E. Howard, this Texas writer uh, who shot himself in his mother's driveway at the age of 30. Uh, and uh, there's a connection that is kind of mm-hmm. clear, right? Uh, but, uh, but also, Conan is like sort of this merciless barbarian, right? Uh, and, uh, and I was interested, he mentions this. There's so much of my own stuff I was into as a, a preteen, early teenager. When I was going to comic book stores, in, and I want to. I always. I want to qualify this. Uh, like comics culture now is in an awesome place of diversifying. But for the longest time, post the '80s, right, it was really this boys' club that was kind of gross in a lot of ways. But in the '70s, that wasn't really. It hadn't all settled in yet. It was a loose, weird place to be into comics. It wasn't. You know, it, it wasn't. There weren't guys circling the wagons and telling you what was or was not a good use of comics because there weren't enough of them, right? It was a very small subculture. It, you know, the comics guys were not making money. And, uh, uh, and I would go into the stores, you know, and they were run by these guys who were sort of like the prototype of the Simpsons comic book store guy. And, uh, uh, and, but, they were, but they were actually, but they weren't exclusionary guys for the most part. They were actually pretty into it. If you knew your, if you asked the right questions, they would hip you to stuff. But the guys who would buy the Conan comic books, which was a Marvel comic, it was the same line as all the other comics, they didn't buy other comics, right? They would, Glenn Danzig is one of these guys. Uh, he you know, runs directly the comic book he's into, right? And doesn't even see, you know, there's a Hulk comic over here, and there's Fantastic Four over there, and they've been really good lately. But the Conan guys go directly to the Conan, they grab Savage Sword of Conan and Red Sonja, and they go directly <laughs> to the cash register, right? <laughs> like, and it was kind of... This is the sort of uh, zealotry that really appeals to me because I'm Catholic and, uh, <laughs> you know, and because I lack it because I don't ever just get into one kind of music and say that all other kinds of music suck, right? It's like I listen to lots of stuff, right? It's like I can't, I can't say, well, you know, the romantic era of classical music is the good one and the other ones are not interesting. No, I have to know about everything. I'm a dilettante right, in that way. Uh, uh, or, or there's other, there's nicer ways to describe dilettantism, but you know, but then people who are like, nope, you meet a guy who's like Beethoven, he was the best, so I just listened to Beethoven, and you think, wow, that's awesome, right? So Conan is sort of a symbol of that to me. He's this sort of very pure figure, you know, of, of the kind of figure who somebody finds goes, that's my icon, that's who I will cleave to. Right. right. It's funny you mentioned your Catholicism because I was going to ask, I was going to preface this. This is my Gerardo Rivera question, sir. Are you a Satanist? 
Because you had <laughs> no, you, no. Had, you, you had that great declaration at the end of the uh, the saga of the uh, the uh, the greatest death metal band out of Denton, and, and you talk a little bit about there are a couple of references not to Satanism but to um, sort of allusions to like uh, almost like the role playing game, like you know, be careful about playing your records backwards kind of thing. You know, yeah, yeah. So, it was, so there's a there's a and, oh, I'm sorry, there's that great line towards the, about the um uh, the unaligned the unaligned cleric. Yeah, 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 I yeah, love yeah. That line. And, uh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, an unaligned cleric. So, in D and D, you know what alignment is? Yeah, well, not you, in D, not in that context. In D and D, alignment <laughs> works like this. So, there's a grid. I want you to picture like a. a uh, how many are there? There's three squares per line, right? In a square with mm-hmm. nine squares in it, right? Nine little squares. So, there's lawful. There's neutral. Uh, and what is it? Chaotic. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, you can be lawful good. Lawful neutral or lawful evil. It can also be neutral good, neutral neutral, right? Or <laughs> neutral evil. Or you can be chaotic good and so forth. And so, so when I was 12, the one time I tried to play D&D as a kid and discovered that, I, I've told this story a lot of times, the reason I didn't go on with D&D was our party got attacked by a ghost in the first session. I thought, I'm going to waste this ghost. And the dungeon master said, well, no, no, nobody here has enough hit points to fight a ghost. And I said, well, everybody's got a chance. And, but that's not how D&D works. <laughs> In fact, not everybody has a chance. So I died instantly. And I was like, this game is garbage, right? <laughs> so, so I never played again but, uh, until recently. But, um, but yeah, so, so an unaligned cleric, you can't actually be unaligned, right? But so I liked the idea of somebody who, who hasn't, you know, you could write your own modification of D&D where you deferred alignment, right, in some way. You could, you'd have to come up with a bunch of new rules. But I liked the idea of an unaligned, you know, somebody who's neither, neither lawful nor unlawful nor, nor anything. Somebody who's off the grid. Well, I'm glad there seem to be people in the audience that know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got off track there. Uh, uh, a little bit of a cliche uh, question, but um, I think one that merits uh, asking, given um, the fact that the entire narrative takes place inside of uh, uh, Sean's head. You know, what about uh, questions of the reliability and unreliability of the narrator, and and how you flirted with that? And I'm generally not interested in yeah. unreliable narrators right, anymore. Right, right. I sort of feel like Baltimore's on Edgar Allan Poe kind of. Did enough, with that, you know, to keep us busy. Right. And it's, I think it's an overplayed trope a lot. Yeah. You know, it's like when I read a, a book and, and suddenly I have to question whether I believe what the guy's saying. This is kind of childish of me, but then I, I you know, I, I get a little frustrated. You know, yeah, there, like, uh, there are those moments though. You know, when he, referring to the, the accident, which I guess is a, is a well, fair, this is the fair thing. description of. It's not that he's unreliable. It's that you don't know how much he's actually telling you. Yeah. I think everything he tells you is true. He's honest. He's very honest. Right? He's like painfully honest. But he's not sure what he thinks, and he's not sure of himself, and he's kind of unaligned in his own way. You know, mm-hmm. his, his motives are obscure to him in many cases, and I think in that way he's as realistic a character as I can think of, that we don't, you know... When you're doing the interviews for an album, you say, oh, why did you decide to write about wrestling? And you go, I don't know. I sat down one day, and I started, you know, started playing the guitar, and sang a line and it happened to be about wrestling so it would be weird for the next line of the song to not be about wrestling so I sang the next line right? and then the song needs to all be about the same subject or it's not a very good song and so you know but, but people are looking for like well I wanted to express this truth and so I sat down and wrote it but that's never the case you write because 
you were in a certain mood or you saw something that inspired you and you didn't know where it was going. Right? I think that's something Sean knows, but he also knows that the actual truth of what drives you is probably obscure to you. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think the other side of the, of the unreliable narrative coin question, uh, question coin is the um, memories. And, yeah. you, and you deal a lot with memories. Right, and yeah. you sort of scratch that itch, I think, um, with dealing with memory Sean's memory, the, pe- the memories that Sean's hearing from other people around him, right. you know, as, as this backward story un- unfolds. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the role of memory? In, yeah, in I mean, I, so I, when I was in high school, I was a big Faulkner reader, and so that, that Faulkner's use of memory and the way that we, we configure the things that we remember is pretty important. Um, and Berryman, too, was my other favorite, who's also big on that. Um, but I mean, I think... The memories are like music that you listen to them in various times of your life and, and they read different, right? They don't, they're not solid, they're not totemic, right? They're actually, you, 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 you rest different meanings from them, you realize new things about them. You remember, you can have these pretty scary Joan Crawford moments where you, you know, you go, oh, I always thought of that as, like, here's the thing. Uh, I'm a grown-up with two kids now, right? So when I think of my parents' divorce when I was five, they had two kids, right? And that feels different to me when I imagine what it must have been like in their heads than it did when I was 21 and had no kids, right? It felt, you know, you sort of, the way you remember your parents' actions, I don't think you get a clearer vision, you just get more takes on it and you sort of, you recognize things as musical, as having various ways of listening, various places to put your focus, you know, and, uh, and so, so there's a lot of that in, in there, the way he remembers things. But he's got this obsession with trying to sort of clearly, lucidly describe a memory without, without shading it too much, right? right? He wants to actually just have a scene. Because you're also dealing with a period of his memory where he was, you know, highly medicated. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Um, my last question before I ask you if you want to read anything else again is it's sort of a question I asked this morning to the panel of musicians who are also writers about um, the, the role of music in the narrative mm-hmm. and, and even, you know, not lyrics, but the way music, the way you play with music inside a narrative, even referring to things like, you know, going back, you know, radio, which is another whole concept yeah. that our kids won't freaking understand. Oh, I don't um, uh, So what's, the, what's, how do you use you know, without saying, oh, John Darnell, Neil, he's going to have to write that music. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with, like, deal yeah, with Yeah, I mean, music it's inconceivable to me to write something in which music doesn't figure. It's been such a huge part of my life since I was very small. Uh, and so, so I can't, you know, for something to not have a musical component is, is weird to me. You know, I, I understand the world in terms of the music in it in a lot of ways. Uh, but... Um, but also for him, he's got this hearing damage, but there's also, he's very interested in texts, in trying to wring meaning from them, right? And for me, the chief texts that I have been looking at most of my life have been albums, right? And, uh, and so, so that's sort of a, a, a way in, you know? It's like, they're, they're, it's not so much about the sound of the music a lot of the time, but as the, the, the vibe. Right, you know? right. I love the scene when uh, Sean, is, Sean is in a, I forget what he's up to, but he's in a parking lot, and he comes across the other uh, yeah, teenager yeah. boys, and they're, like, I don't know, smoking dope or smoking something or drinking beers. <clears throat> and you've got the, um, the song by Styx, Renegade. Yes. Now, and... and you know, I think, you know, what would you say about being cautious about those kinds of, uh, those little nuggets about, well, you don't want, you know, running a gig by sticks, and you, the, the, the lyrics then start going through your head, and, yeah. you, and you start, you know, 
what's the author trying to say about this moment because he's used this particular song and he's named it. Yeah, but so. I, I'm, I wouldn't think about the lyrics. I'm thinking about the sound. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the other thing is like there's a lot about this book. It's been really gratifying that people can find something in it because it's so local to my Southern California memories. Like a truck playing KLOS, playing playing Renegade in a liquor store parking lot. Anybody who grew up where I grew up sees that very vividly, right? Like knows, can see exactly that parking lot, whether it's in L.A. or Chino or La Puente or Claremont or Pomona or wherever. It's the same liquor store. It has the same kind right. of sign. It's like local architectural tendencies and stuff. And the radio station, uh, we had rock radio in SoCal was its own thing and, uh, and, and played Renegade to the bitter end. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, but yet those details transcend because no, I, even, I, make, I make a note here on the end papers about, you know, the, we're almost identically, exactly the same age, and you've got heavy metal, Conan, and wrestling. Right. And I've got punk, Batman, and This Week in Baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. different ways we spent our Saturday afternoons, you know, yeah, watching yeah. This Week in Baseball with Mel Allen versus, you know, no, I got into This Week in Baseball right, in my right, mid-20s. Right. <laughs> so, um, but yet, even though our, yet they're the same, you yeah, know, yeah. you know. Music. No, that's right. The points of uh, contact. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, do you want to read a little something? Sure, a little something. Yeah. Let's see what I can do. Um, oh, I will read about the tapes. This. Mm. Um, I stopped listening to tapes at some point. It was a phase. You either get used to noises in your head or you learn to focus instead on whatever other noises happen to be present in the room, like the air conditioner or the bells. Uh, still, I kept them, and they're arranged neatly on top of the dresser in my bedroom, which means Vicky dusts them once a week. They look like museum pieces now. Chaos, blood, black lake, Rexecutioner's dream. Sean, at 16, thought Rexecutioner's dream was the greatest thing he'd ever heard, something so strange and different. It seemed like a message from another realm. It had cover art but the art was glued onto the inner sleeve of a standard-issue blank cassette. The spine was hand-lettered. It was the product of someone's hard work, a vision brought into the world of real things, a dream disguised in a crude, plain package. When the hate mail started up, I had an impulse of the sort I rarely get anymore, the kind the antidepressants I'm supposed to be taking would probably keep completely and indefinitely in check. I was sitting up in bed, reading the postcard that began, You aren't going to hear us when we come in, you ugly reject trying to see if reading it several times over would quiet the real fear it gave me. You're just going to feel the pain. And the light through the window caught the edge of something hard and shiny across the room, and I thought, if any of these have a return address in them, I'm going to send that person a tape. Something random from on top of the dresser. Fire caverns. Just put it into a jiffy bag and mail it. I got as far as sliding one of the tapes out from the row and setting it down on my desk next to the letters like an arrow in the quiver, but of course, nobody threatening to kill me was about to send a return address. I hope they give you the chair. And then I pictured myself sending some incomprehensible tape to a stranger whose hatred for me was a pure flame, bright and clear. Someone who'd hear a package drop in through his mail slot one day and find when he opened it this unexpected, undecodable thing. And he'd turn it over in his hands, trying to make sense of it. And he'd feel all shaken up or confused or a little scared. And I said out loud, no and did the deep breathing exercises I learned in relaxation class when I was 17. I made ready to tear the threats all into neat squares, but instead I put them in a manila envelope and tucked it into the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet, down among the scenes and byroads almost no one's ever seen. More mail came in the following weeks. I wondered if swells in volume 
meant there had been some editorial in a local paper somewhere about a gunshot survivor who'd lured a couple of teenagers to a frozen grave, maybe even a human interest story on the evening news, because it did seem to come in waves. There were appeals to my conscience to turn myself in, and prayer groups letting me know they were interceding with God on my behalf. I stopped reading this stuff fairly quickly. I either filed them, or if an envelope looked a little fat and came from an unknown source, I'd hand it over unopened to my lawyer, who I assume put them all into a filing cabinet of her own. But Dear Freak was the first one, out ahead of the actual news, a confusing and frightening intrusion into the dull quiet of my life, the first I had heard about any of this. The crazy road trip letters from Lance and Carrie had stopped suddenly, and I'd thought maybe their parents had made them come home, and there'd been radio silence for a week, two weeks, and then Dear Freak with the Internet Now, one of about seven letters from strangers that came that day, some supportive and some caustic, a stack around which the postman or somebody at the post office had put a rubber band. I remember the rubber band because I reflexively threaded it from my pinky around my thumb to my index finger pistol, pistol style and shot it across the room. Thanks, John. Sure. Uh, how about some questions from the audience? Alan. So I have a story about this. Uh, the, when I signed with FSG, everybody said, who's your editor? I said, Sean McDonald. And everybody down to a man said, oh, he's the best editor in New York. I was very pleased to hear this. Uh, and I sent the manuscript in when I finished. And he got called away on family business. So they had to wait a month and a half, right? I sit there and go, oh, my God, it must be terrible. It must be awful if he's taken this long, you know. And he writes back with an attachment. And so here's my thoughts. You know, look them over. Let me know what you think. And I assumed it was the manuscript with a bunch of red markings on it I was going to have to start, you know, going to war about. I didn't open it for most of the day. I just said, oh, okay, there's the thing. There's the thing. Get ready now. Get ready for this. I opened it, and it was three paragraphs of very loose thoughts. I was like, well, this looks pretty good. I might look a little at this, and here's a, here's a thing you might close, you know, a circle or two. I'd like to hear more from so-and-so, and I think we'll be done. It was great. It was the best thing I've ever seen. Because I was like, because then I wrote a bunch more, and and uh, you know I found new scenes, and uh, uh, but I also I revise as I go. I really, really, I worry the sentence until I have it right. I, I don't have to write the scene out and then go back to it. Play with the same sentence, same wording over and over again. Read it out loud. So by the time I had the thing done, the actual revision involved more moving stuff around than rewriting. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it's violent. That's why it's 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 a physical. So much of the book takes place inside a person's head or in the past. Right. That book takes place. That moment takes place in the present moment, and it, you hear the crash. Right. It's really, really loud and violent and senseless. What what is uncompelling about senseless violence? It's, it's like you know, it's like when there's no, you can't, you don't know why the guy. You have to make up your own story about why the car is crashing. You don't know what's going on, right? And and there's a person watching. There's that element of voyeurism that's always compelling in 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 literature when somebody's watching something and the other and the people being watched don't know. That always opens up. You know, it's sort of like it's a it's it's like a dream. 
you know, and dreams are interesting because we don't know what they mean. Thanks for asking that question because I had the same, the same reaction. Yeah, it's the and I, and it the took crash, me, yeah, and it took me a while to figure out. Well, what the hell is that even doing there? And then it, you know, well, kind of, you know, I mean, I can spoil that for you. It's because well, the, the car is moving backwards, right, right. and when it hits the other car, a crash happens. Right? And so that's what. It, <laughs> so as simple as that. <laughs> other questions about writing, about music. Uh, I'd even allow him to entertain D&D questions if you had to. <laughs> no D&D no, 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 D &D questions. We don't questions. have questions, it's okay. Though. <laughs> um, cool, well, I've, I've got one last little fanboy question, if you, don't, if you mm. allow me. Um, so in 1991, uh, John lives in Durham now, and um, in 1991 I was, did my first year of grad school at Duke. And uh, I discovered this band called Super Chunk. And... Uh, and uh, spent uh, way too much time at the uh, Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill as a post, and that's probably why they did not invite me back for a second year of graduate school. Flash forward, forward almost 10 years later, I'm um, tending to my, my then infant daughter and uh, trolling the late night uh, TV shows, and uh, I hear that Super Chunk's going to be playing on Fallon. So I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm certainly going to be awake with this baby, so I'll catch it. And... Um, and it's Super Chunk, but with uh, an additional member, John Darneal. And um, which it was the first time I kind of like put, oh, that guy, that band, this band, that guy, put it, kind of put it all together. But you look like you were having a hell a lot of fun that Yeah, night. but I'm always having fun on stage. Man, so I mean, it was really, really cool. And I, I remember getting to sight. I, I saw that memory. I was just yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I love Super Chunk and I loved your work. But I was like, oh, I just, he looks like he's having a blast. Yeah, I feel um, like I went over to... Like England the next day, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, yeah. I'm always having fun on stage. It's like I just, you know, but it, normally I have a guitar, so I can't quite jump that high. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Yeah, you were playing the whatever. The, I don't know what you were playing. Um, so did I have like one of John's eggs, probably a little shaky? Yeah, like a little spot. shaky, yeah. like one of those, yeah, with the seeds in it or yeah, something yeah. or whatever. Um, so I'm, it's really cool. I mean, that you're living in Durham now. I think it's a great town. A very, you know, a very, you know, what Mac's doing down there, with, what it's done for so long, and yep. even back to the the Lex act, Let's Active days and, and you yep. know stuff like that. Really cool stuff. Um, so what's going to happen now is that I'm going to escort John downstairs, where he is going to sign your books, and they're available from the Ivy Bookstore. And this sort of officially concludes the programming for the City Lit Festival. So again, join me in thanking uh, John Darnielle for being with us today. Thanks, all.